Well, it's been a tough year, uh, <laughs> and uh, in the midst of it, um, we've got an election campaign going on, and uh, so all sorts of stuff kind of bubbles to the surface. 2020's brought a lot to the service, uh, surface, and having uh, an election in the midst of it, um, and uh, both here and, and in the United States, brings a whole bunch more issues up to the surface. Can I just say that nothing would be more enjoyable for me than to not go down this track? <laughs> oh man, you know, and probably a lot of pastors have chosen not to, and I can totally appreciate why, you know. Um, and I know that it's just like we're, we're hitting deep water on a lot of these subjects, and um, a lot of you are like, oh, I wish we wouldn't have to look at all this right now. I don't have heaps of emotional gas in the tank. And um, again, I'm sorry for the perfect storm that this season is in lots of ways. Um, but when we started this church, we made a decision that one of our values would be that would be people of depth, be people of depth, that we wouldn't skim along the surface, that we'd look at the tricky issues, the head-scratching stuff. And um, yeah, I, I would far rather go to my grave saying, at least I had the courage to go to these sort of places than wish I had back, you know, with all that's going on. And so this morning we're looking at, um, we're continuing our series on the politics of the kingdom of God. This Sunday we're going to be looking at um, the uh, topic primarily of abortion, but we're going to be looking in general terms as well why Christians are pro-life. And, um, and next week we're going to be interviewing Andrew Gurman uh, and uh, talking about the end-of-life bill that we're voting on on a referendum and getting his perspective on some of these things. Um, but we are going to be looking at... Um, at uh, the subject this morning. No subject is more heated than this one, I suspect. This is the hottest potato I have handled. Um, and I've talked about this in the past, but um, not to this depth, I don't think. Um, and the recent law change, and, and sorry, before I am going to lean so heavily on my notes today, I'm pretty much going to read them, okay? Because uh, there's no tangents. I pray, pray for me, church. Pray for, we are not live streaming this service for a reason. Uh, it's, uh, we are, we are, uh, so, I'm going to, so it's going to be a little more academic and lectury today, uh, just to protect myself. I want to try and get this right. Um, and, uh, and this is because it's a huge hot potato. And the recent law changes to the Abortion Act is once more something that most Christians have been hugely stirred up. Uh, you know, there's a real frustration, disappointment, even anger, both with the process around how these laws came to be and uh, the content within them. So this morning what I want to look at is why most Christians are pro-life, not every Christian. Uh, I want to look at what a consistent pro-life ethic looks like. I want to use a tool that helps bring clarity to different aspects of this issue, and I want to finish with a kingdom vision for uh, this issue. Uh, three things I want to say as we open this talk, uh, some opening comments here. In this talk, I'm going to primarily uh, critique the church engagement with this issue. I'm not critiquing society or government. That's just not my, you know, I think Christians have a role to critique and be a prophetic voice to governmental powers, absolutely. But in this corridor, I want to talk to the brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an in-house conversation. This is my lane. And I actually think this is where the solution lies for the most part. Um, and so, uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is I want to say this. If you are pro-choice, you are welcome here. If you are pro-choice, you are welcome here. You do not have to believe what the pastor believes to be welcomed in a church. Uh, if you don't even call yourself a Christian, but you're interested in what we're about, you are welcome here. You can belong here. It can be your community before you believe anything that most of us may believe. 
This is the loving community of God where everyone is welcome. And we mess that up all the time. We mess that up all that we fall short of God's unconditional love all the time. That's the, that's the biggest failing we as the church probably experience regularly. We're not great at this. When Jesus called us to love our neighbours, he meant every single one of them. He even goes to, so far as to call us to love our enemies. And that's why we keep coming to the table, because we do not live up to that ideal. We do not live up to that standard. Many people have been hurt by Christians who hold very strong opinions about certain issues and have therefore unintentionally for sure hurt people deeply. And the last thing I want to say is that if you have had an abortion, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. We believe in the scandalous grace of God for you. And so you are loved. And I pray that you would come to a place where you see the church as a safe place to process that uh, decision. Rick Warren uh, has said, Our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, and I would add political views or particularly views around abortion, if you disagree with them, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. We can accept everyone. We have confused acceptance and agreement. We can, we, the church is a place where everyone is accepted. And, uh, and uh, yeah. So, why most Christians are pro-life? That's a picture of my grandfather a few years before he died holding Judah, our now eight-year-old. The reason most Christians are pro-life is because we believe in the living God who is absolutely obsessed with life. Everything God touches comes to life. Creation is teeming with life. Jesus Christ is called the bread of life. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the word of life. He calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. He offers us a promise of life, the crown of life, the tree of life. For those who receive him, Jesus offers us eternal life. In 2 Timothy, it says that Jesus' mission was to invade our culture of death and destroy it, which he did on the cross. There's a bunch of scriptures that would inform a pro-life position for most Christians, and particularly our view of the unborn child. For example, Psalm 139, 13 to 14 says, You created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The key text for Christians in the sanctity of life is this scripture in one, uh, Genesis 1 verse 26, when God said, Let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. The Christian pro-life ethic stems from the strongest possible conviction that every person, including the unborn, is made in the image of God and carries infinite worth. This is where, theologically, this view stems from. God created every single person in His image, in His likeness. They've been created in the image of a holy God and carry infinite worth. Now, interestingly, this is also the theological view that would say, therefore, every single person we engage with, engage with carries the imago Dei, the image of God, especially those whom we disagree with. And this is where immediately we hit some of the hypocrisy, I think, that people struggle with from Christians. Would a liberal politician come to the church and expect love and mercy and grace and kindness? Would a doctor who performs abortions think this would be a safe place to come? 
Would a woman who has had an abortion know that this is the place to come to process this, that all of them are made in the image of God, that this all has the roots in how we treat people, the same scripture? Uh, they are, everyone is worthy of love and dignity. That doesn't mean, again, we would, disagree, you know, would have some disagreements about life choices. <laughs> I have those conversations almost every week <laughs> with people in our church sometimes. It's like, I just don't think that's a great, but it's in the context of loving relationship. Often I think we've tried to go on swinging first. Actually, it's the embrace first. It's the embrace first. And then in the context of loving relationship, in the context of relationship, it's those conversations. Now, the church's position on this has remained unchanged throughout history. There's an unbroken chain of witness from the earliest days of Christian church to the 20th century, voicing a strong countercultural opposition to abortion and a strong focus on the gift of life. But, but it's important for Christians to really try and understand why people have a pro-choice perspective. It's, uh, as Rage Against the Machine famously said, you've got to know your enemy. Now, again, reminder that the Bible calls you to love your enemy, step one. But it's important that if you want to engage in meaningful dialogue with people that you have a different view with, that you really understand the view of someone that uh, has a, a different view. And so the, those that, who advocate for abortion base this premise on the fact that while a fetus may have biological life, it is not a person yet. And because of this, a woman can choose not to keep the fetus. The most, most recent legislation in New Zealand goes beyond that premise uh, and uh, where abortions can be given uh, right up before birth. And so we pray that late-term abortions are only ever used when a mother's life is at risk. But uh, Rich Nathan, uh, who's the pastor of Vineyard Columbus, who we're going to be referencing a number of times today, says virtually every bioethicist in the world agrees that human life begins at conception. The case for aborting a baby is made from this idea that while the fetus is alive, it's not a person. So philosophers and judges and politicians have made this new category a non-person. Are they a person? Because a person has rights and warrants legal protection. So, for example, someone like Peter Singer, a Princeton ethicist, he wrote that the life of a human organism begins at conception, but the life of a person, a being with some level of self-awareness, does not begin so early. Now, Christians would, uh, would reject this argument outright. We would say that as soon as life begins at conception, there is a person of infinite value and potential. That the, life, the value of the life cannot be determined subjectively by a parent or by a doctor or by a politician because they are either a, pol either a person or they are not. And the Christian position is that they are. And even if there was debate about this, the benefit of the doubt should go to the fetus. Let me illustrate this. Rich Nathan uses this example. Let's just say you're a hunter and you are in the woods with a shotgun when you hear something rustling in the bush. You think that the rustling might indicate the presence of a deer, but you aren't sure because the bush is so thick. You can't see who or what was rustling in the bush. In fact, you su suspect that there are other hunters in the area. What would a reasonable person do if they weren't sure whether human life is present in the bush or not? Would they fire their gun because they say, you know, I can't be certain that what I'm killing is a person? Or would they say the only moral thing to do would be to presume that whatever is rustling in the bush may be a person, I'm going to hold my fire, I'm going to withhold killing until I'm certain that it's not a person? So for those who argue that, uh, that uh, no one can be sure that a fetus in the womb is a person, we would say if there's any doubt at all, we ought to award the benefit of the doubt to the fetus and not kill what may in fact be a person entitled to the right to life. We ought to resolve all doubts in favour of human life. 
a fetus is different from appendix or a set of tonsils. The full potential of human life is indisputably there. So David, um, David Gushy, the professor of Christian ethics from Mercy University, says the concept of sanctity of life is the belief that all human beings at any and every stage in any and every state of consciousness or self-awareness of any and every race, colour, ethnicity, level of intelligence, religion, language, gender, character, behaviour, physical ability, disability, potential class, social status, etc., <gasps> of any and every particular quality of relationship to the viewing subject, listen, are to be perceived as persons of equal and immeasurable worth and of inviolable dignity and therefore must be treated in a manner commensurate with this moral status. This is why Christians are pro-life. This is why we are passionately, for the most part, most Christians are passionately pro-life. But this position is not exclusively held to the unborn child. This is a position that's meant to be consistent to all of life. So what we're talking about today is predominantly pro-birth, but actually what its ethic is found in a pro-life theology. Uh, so let me illustrate what I mean here. Um, a consistent pro-life ethic will passionately advocate for life at every stage on every major issue that would affect life. This is what consistent uh, pro-life would look like. So, of course, you've got an unborn child, but you've also got welfare. I've been reading lots of really exciting things over the last couple of months, like welfare, the family, and reproductive behaviour research perspectives. And there is an undeniable link between the health of welfare amongst poor women and abortion rates. Just a direct link. And so Christians should be super passionate. It's a pro-life issue to, to be super passionate about radically generous welfare support to the point of being a bit silly if it's going to help women make a decision to keep a baby. Amen? So then you've got things like guns. Now, uh, now, while in New Zealand, uh, this isn't a major issue. We live in a global village, and so uh, there's all sorts of stuff going on here, and people are looking at how Christians uh, act in terms of integrity, in terms of consistency around some of this stuff. Tragically, in the United States, more children die from gun deaths than die from cancer. More children in the U.S. die from gun events than cancer. And unfortunately, the party that's pro-birth is also violently protecting the rights of people to have gun control. Now, I've got no problem with going for a hunt, and I've got no problem with when people want to shoot something at the range, but Christians, in terms of a pro-life ethic, should be very much in favour of unbelievably strict control over something that is designed, at its core, to take a life. Right? War. This is a pro, this is consistent, like this is life, we're pro-life. Uh, uh, the death penalty, again, not an issue in New Zealand, but um, I was watching a speech from, from uh, the President of the United States yesterday where in the same sentence he said they want to take babies and then literally within 30 seconds said they also want to stop, the Liberals want to stop us having the death penalty. Now, I'm, I've got... Um, I, I don't want to talk about Trump today because it's a red herring. I don't want to muddy the water. And I understand why people are for him. I've looked into it big time. But we've got to call out this sort of stuff consistently. We, who, it doesn't matter who says it. That's not pro-life. That's not a consistent pro-life ethic. That puts you in a conundrum if you're a Christian who's pro-life in the States because you're voting for a party that's pro-birth, uh, that's got some issues around gun control. The death penalty, so uh, sorry, death penalty, refugees, um, uh, and then uh, our elderly. Um, 
Fleming Rutledge, an incredible, uh, incredible uh, theologian author. One must wonder why, that it, uh, why it is that so many, not all, but it seems a majority of people who are vehemently opposed to abortion are so indifferent to loss of life by guns, loss of life on the southern border, loss of life because of poor medical care, loss of life at the hands of the police. So a pro-life position has integrity when it is passionate about the whole of life. The interesting thing, uh, I've got a, I came from Wellington before we moved to Christchurch, before we moved to the Bay. And in Wellington, uh, part of a church, predominantly students, and, uh, and also because of uh, my history in New Zealand and, and whatnot, I've got a bunch of other church mates that I'm you know, involved with uh, from Wellington. Interesting thing is that my mates that, that walked in the protest against the Iraq war wouldn't walk in the March for Life for whatever reason. And those that walked in the March for Life certainly didn't walk in the march against the war in Iraq back in the day. This is just anecdotal, but I just know that's just my observation. So this speaks to me of an inconsistency around our thinking around pro-life issues, around Genesis 1.26. Every single person is made in the image of God. And so when it comes to certain things like war, we have to, like, looking at the teachings of Jesus, you just cannot get around the fact he's pretty much a pacifist. Now, theologians have debated at certain points, is a war justified? And Augustine went down this track and said, yes, at certain points, uh, there is a case for just war. But the parameters around just war were that every single possible diplomatic means had been utterly exhausted and only as an absolute last resort with great reluctance would we go to war. That was Augustinian's view on just war from a theological perspective. I would argue, you know, like we, we've, there's got to be consistency here. Now, uh, the problem is, is that abortion naturally, of course, is a big deal for people. And some people make this the sole issue that they would vote around. And I can understand why. I really can. I've looked at this for months now. I can understand why uh, we would have this. It is problematic. And, and I think you can vote that way as long as you appreciate the problem rather than be in ignorance of the problem. The problem is, there's a number of problems. One is that foxy politicians, as Jesus called Herod, can easily play us. They can say they are pro-life, and then they're like, yay, we've got a whole lot of Christians in my back pocket, even if there's a whole bunch of other policies that are very counter to what a Christian would probably stand for. Um, and so, now I want to say with, with all of these things as well, these, these, all these issues don't carry the same moral weight. The number of people that would die because of welfare are very different from the number of people, tragically, uh, number of children that would be aborted in a given year. The numbers are horrifying. They have different moral weights. But I think to be consistent, we need to not just focus on one issue, because to focus on one issue is actually to flirt with, if not walk in hypocrisy. We actually we can hold all of these issues together and be consistent in our voice around them. Some have a greater moral weight than others, but we can be consistent in terms of a, a, a consistent ethic of, around the pro-life perspective. So I want to look at uh, a tool that I found really helpful uh, from this guy, Dennis Hollinger, who's a professor of Christian ethics at the Evangelical School of Theology in Pennsylvania. You're in a lecture now, folks. Uh, he helpfully distinguishes between three things that Christians often just stir together, which are Christian ethics, Christian pastoral care, and a Christian approach to public policy. And I want to add 
lastly, a kingdom vision for that same issue. So what we mean here is, is kingdom ethics. What we're talking about with ethics is we are talking about what is God's ideal, what is God's will, what does God intend for any given issue? That's the ethic. Pastoral care. How do we relate and care and love for people who have fallen short of God's ethic? How do we help restore and redeem and bring healing? And public policy, what is our approach in a secular, pluralistic society that doesn't agree, for the most part, with the Christian view of ethics? What are the public policies that are going to help see the ethic that we are passionate about be accessed or move forward? The reality is that only 9% of New Zealanders are active practitioners in terms of following Jesus. The number in terms of regular church attenders is tragically even less than that. So we're dealing with the minority view now. I know the, the nation was built on Christian values, but that, is, that ship has long sailed. So we need to really be wise about what are the public policies that are going to help us. Uh, and lastly, a kingdom vision. Listen to this. Taking the government and legislation completely out of the picture, what can and should we as the body of Christ do to help God bring God's kingdom into the space? Right? Okay. Now, I want to critique the church on this. I want to critique it because I love the church. I want to call out its potential. I want to call out its destiny. I want us to be the body of Christ that sees the kingdom of God come on earth as it is in heaven. We, are, we did not get saved to wait to die and then go to heaven. We got saved so that heaven would come to earth now while we live. That is what we are all about. And I also believe, honestly, guys, we need to repent a bit around some of our approach. And I don't say that lightly, but I do, I do mean it. I, and for whatever little authority I've got in New Zealand, I want to say well, there's bits that we need to repent of. It's a good start. Let me explain why. My, my issue and wrestle has been, <laughs> I think we've had a legislative vision rather than a kingdom vision. I think... Now, a kingdom vision can incorporate a vision for legislative change, but it, which, which is actually a relatively real luxury in the church's history. But of course it should incorporate, of course it should incorporate the dream for legislative change. But it should never and not be the only focus. And I want to say that for the most part, what I've seen in New Zealand and around the world are Christians that have a legislative vision for this issue. We have an ethic that says this is wrong and, we, and it should be illegal. And therefore, our energy and focus has been on trying to bring about legislative change, which I think deep down we know is a long shot. Now, I know it's hard to hear, but I think we've got to be realistic about the fact that we are only 9%, maybe less. We have to appreciate that there is not a Western country in the world that has made abortion illegal. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. I'm not saying we shouldn't try, but I'm asking the question... Like, let's keep that lane going, but is that the best use of energy to see the change that we long to see in New Zealand? We have to ask that honestly, okay? Um, so throughout church history, the people of God have never relied on a government to bring about the agenda of God. And when they did get close to the power that be, it, almost universally corrupted the church without exception. Jesus never tried to make Caesar do what he knew was best for the region. 
The early church never did this. Now, God's heart was outworked through laws in the Old Testament. But like I said last week, the Old Testament is evidence that laws cannot change heart and it ended consistently in disaster. Genesis 3.21, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law of the Old Testament. It didn't. Now, and I'm going to take it a step further here. Some of Jesus' strongest words to religious people in Matthew 24, which is a zinger of a passage, if you put yourself in the space of the Pharisees, were these. These people tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. In other words, these people have an expectation about how somebody should live. For example, you should keep the baby, but they are not prepared to lift a finger to help that person have that baby and not be completely overwhelmed by life. What do you, what do you, we say you should keep your baby, but we don't do too much to help them keep it. And I know this is heavy, but frankly, I think we need to repent. I think we need to repent that we have looked to Caesar rather than God to bring about the change that we long to see in the country. And I want to say this gently, but it's really easy to be passionate about legislation because it doesn't require you to love someone that's broken and difficult to love. It doesn't actually cost you that much. Social media is like yelling into the wind. I don't think it helps. I think it's very, very little help to those who face a crisis pregnancy. We aren't just called, and I believe we should, but we aren't just called to march to Parliament or march online and lift our voices. We're actually primarily called to march into the lives of those who are vulnerable, lift them out of the pain and crushing circumstances that have put them in this horrific position. And we are called to go and bring support and compassion and care and the love of Jesus. That's the calling of the church. John Tyson says this, I care less and less about people's opinions on cultural issues and more and more about the quality of their embodied response to those issues. How you live is what you believe. Everything else is just talk. So if we were to look at these, uh, this whole thing of public policy, pastoral care, and kingdom, uh, kingdom activity or kingdom vision, where do you think the majority of the energy has gone? Where do you think the, an honest appraisal, keeping in mind that kingdom activity has nothing to do with primarily with legislative focus. Here's my take. Here's my take. I think we've put a huge amount of energy and focus into the legislation, and I agree it is not right. It should be opposed. But I would contend our pastoral care has largely been absent from our energy and focus for those that have fallen short of this ethic. And our kingdom activity, engaging people directly impact, impacted, I, I see very, very little direct ministry. I see some wraparound things that can help, but little direct ministry. So there are, there's, there are public policies that would also contribute uh, to seeing abortions lower. Statistically, uh, the reality. Uh, for example, um, the, adoption, uh, the adoption legislation that's currently in New Zealand. The latest figures I could find were from 2017. That year, there were 13,285 abortions in New Zealand and 128 adoptions. Now, I know, because I've had friends navigate this, that the process to adopt or to have a home for life is not easy. It's not an option encouraged. It's not an option promoted. And if we want people to keep babies uh, and adopt them as an option then we've got a problem. Logically, this needs to be addressed before there's, uh, 
before abortion's illegal, right? Uh, and so we need Christians to step into the space, to lobby, to advocate for change, to get clued up, to gather together. The church, when it, when it wants to be, is incredibly smart and very effective. <laughs> this is an area of public policy that needs a lot of work. Secondly, we should, of course, be supportive of any policy that's going to help support women, especially with preschool costs, daycare costs, maternity leave, post, any postnatal support for women, especially those passionate about their career or study or whatever it may be. Every policy that we can support there will help our endeavours to see our ethic around, the king, around pro-life uh, be furthered. Thirdly, access to contraception and sex education. Now, my Catholic brothers and sisters are going to disagree with me on this one. And, and the Christian ethic, right, is that people lose their virginity on their wedding night. That's our dream. Am I right? Isn't this helpful, this little tool? Right? So you've, you've got, so the Christian ethic is you lose your virginity on your wedding night. Now, is, uh, is that happening in society? No, so we're quite comfortable with acknowledging, you know, a lot of them are like rabbits. So it's like, well, what can we do to, to stop a woman him to make a horrific choice, a horrific choice around abortion is to, to promote contraception and access to. And the reality, again, all the study around, particularly for uh, teenagers, there's a lot of stigma around it, and particularly uh, for poorer communities, that access to this needs to be very easy and shame-free. Now, I, would, I lost my virginity on my wedding night. That's not like some ethic that you can't, you know, reach or whatever. But, it, you know, it's a little too much information for some of you. But it's like, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm like, I'm just well aware that, uh, that God's ideal and then there's public policies that will help in terms of just being smart because we are pro-life. And if I, if I had the choice, it would be neither, that you would enjoy, you know, 60 times for the first time and you're, oh, I'm going down. I'm surprised I want to do this. <laughs> But that's not the case. So we've got to, we deal with the pastoral care. We deal with, the, oh, Lord, have mercy. And lastly, a policy, we all needed that. Uh, lastly, uh, uh, as I said earlier, serious radical generosity in our welfare for the poorest in our country is a policy that directly impacts whether people have abortions or not. So uh, that's just the public policy. I think there's been a massive failing as uh, followers of Jesus around pastoral care towards those that have, fe have felt like ab abortion was the best or only option. Would a woman who has had an abortion feel like the safest place to come is the church to process that decision? If the answer is no, then we have got a major pastoral care uh, problem and there's some repentance that needed and some re-looking at what that looks like. And lastly, I would contend that actually Jesus' example in response to the brokenness around him was utterly the opposite to where we have put our energy on the issue. I don't think, I think for Jesus, the graph would be the opposite. I think he would have a kingdom vision. He was incredibly pastoral. And, uh, and he just wasn't that concerned about the laws of the land. He just, and now I appreciate we have the luxury of democracy and we get to raise our voice, and we should. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't, but I'm saying where predominantly has our energy been going? And is it effective in what our dream is? So here's uh, the statistics for abortion in New Zealand from 1980 to the last year per 1,000 women. And as you can see, we're tracking in the right direction after it peaking in the early 2000s. But the kingdom vision is to see that graph plummet. Amen? The kingdom vision is to see that graph plummet. So what can we do? Oh, you guys want relief, I'm sure. Surely, Harvey, you can't just say all this and not have some sort of kingdom vision that we can sink our teeth into because, you know, I feel like there's been a bit of yes and amen in the room. So let me say this. The most beautiful example I've seen of a kingdom vision outworked 
is in Vineyard Columbus Church in Ohio, led by Rich Nathan, with a value life ministry led by Diane Bauman. I can't help but think what the world would look like if every church had ministries like this. So I want to play a two-minute video of their, uh, of their little summary of their ministry and what they do. When a woman feels she doesn't have a choice, that her only option is an abortion, when they feel like the, their uh, finances or the environment they're in says the only choice I have is to abort my baby, rarely is it ever the decision that she really wants to make. What the Value Life Ministry does is give women real choices. The Value Life Ministry provides um, emotional support, spiritual support, and physical support to women in crisis during their pregnancies. Not only being able to uh, provide them with uh, supplies and things for the baby, but just also to guide them through the whole process of the pregnancy. We think it's essential to come alongside and help women and, and parents find long-term solutions. The most important part is just uh, that they have a, a helping hand and a friend. Well, there's a couple ways that you can get involved in the Value Life Ministry. One way is to become a Mother Heart Mentor. Our Mother Heart Mentors partner with women, helping them find resources for whatever their struggles are in their life. Another way is just providing diapers, baby clothing, baby items that you just pick up and you can drop them off anytime at the church. And we make sure that those items are distributed to the moms that um, need them. We empower women to make choices that are life affirming that value life. Isn't that awesome? The, this ministry every year works with between five and 600 women every single year facing an unintended or crisis pregnancy. For well over a decade, they have been running this ministry where thousands of women have been engaged with, and in that space, they've been offered education assistance, job assistance, financial direction, parenting classes, adoption information if they request it, uh, material assistance, you know, practical support, spiritual support, and I love this. Our vision is to provide a complete support system which will result in a physically and spiritually healthy mum and child from the beginning of the pregnancy throughout the entirety of the child and mother's life. Oh man, I love this. I just love it. I, I just imagine, like, imagine if New Zealand knew that this is what the church was there for. Imagine if like everyone in the Bay or in New Zealand knew that if you had a pregnancy, there was a group of people who were going to look after you. That, that, uh, and we said, we said to society, for the first two years, the nappies are on us. You don't have to worry about the nappies. We're going to get aunties around you to support you. We're going to help you with, with uh, financial support. We're going to help you with budgeting support. We're going to help you with education support. Can you imagine what would happen if that was the case? Imagine if in every doctor's uh, place around, with all the pamphlets that you, you get given if you get pregnant, there's a pamphlet from a local church that says, here's what we are prepared to to do for you. We will support you. You have a choice. You have a choice. We are a pro-choice country, sadly, but you have a choice. You can keep it. You can adopt it, whatever you want to do. And here's the thing. 
of the people that engage with that ministry, only 1% go through with their abortion. 99% of the women keep their baby. 99%, that's a kingdom vision. Who wants to see 99% of abortions just off the table? Well, this, is, this says to me that, that women have a maternal instinct that kicks in, but the pressure and the pain and, and the, the, the noise and the voices around them say that they've got no option. And the church is meant to be that option, but instead we're just another voice that condemns them and makes them smell, feel small and little. And like we're the last place they would go. We need to reclaim a kingdom vision for this, inst- this, this issue. And a kingdom vision says you can have whatever legislation you like, but we will so love those on the fringes, those that are vulnerable, that abortion rates will plummet. That is a kingdom vision. And further, they have a pastoral care response to those who have fallen short of the ethic. They run a place called uh, a heart Uh, a heart group. This is healing the effects of abortion-related trauma, a support group for women who have had an abortion. That is awesome. A confidential course that women can take to process uh, the decision that they've made in confidence in a loving environment. I've said this so many times over the last three weeks. I didn't sign up to be part of a political lobby group. I signed up to be part of the kingdom of God advancing in New Zealand. And it's time that we reclaim the kingdom vision. Our vision here in this church is to see the bay flooded with God's presence and to see people who are becoming more like Jesus and to bring missional wholeness, to bring the kingdom of God into the region. That's why we are here today. So here's our response today as a church, really practically. If you care about this issue, the first step that I want to invite us to do and to commit to is to have a deep devotional life with Jesus. That's where it starts. We don't start by going and doing, we start by going and being with Him. That's where it starts. Abiding from there, that's where the compassion, it's His compassion, His grace, His mercy, His love, that flows through us when we have a deep interior life with Jesus. Get in a home church, do our devotional module and go deeper. Go deeper. I do not want, and I say this as a pastor, I do not want people engaging with vulnerable women who aren't red hot for Jesus. I don't want social workers, I want kingdom builders. I want people who carry the presence of the king wherever they go and who unlock, will be given the keys of the king and unlock something of the kingdom in the world around us. Secondly, uh, if you want to get involved, I want you to commit to loving and serving the bride, the church. I don't care, and I know lots of people are going to watch this online. Find a community of faith that helps you flourish. It's not going to be perfect. And the fact that it annoys you is actually part of your formation. Get your heads around that. Stop being a consumer. And that, anyway, that's a whole other sermon. But find a community that, of faith that helps you flourish in some, and then commit to it. For the kingdom of God to advance, we've got to commit to a healthy body of Christ. We cannot change a peanut if you don't turn up. We can't change a peanut if you're disengaged and you come every blue moon. We need to have this body of Christ flourishing if we want to see the kingdom of God advance. You cannot separate the two. Okay, So that's the first two things. Third thing is, let's start a value life ministry. Who's with me? Who's keen to? Let's, who, let's start a value life minute. Now, we're not a mega church. Rich Nathan's got 8,000 people in his church. We've got a couple of hundred on a really good Sunday, it turns out, pre-COVID. Uh, but I don't care. Let's start something. 
let's start something. And the amazing thing is that we have Beth Tikiti in our church, who's the principal, co-principal of William, William Colenso College. And in William Colenso College, they have a teenage mums unit. These women have courageously chosen to keep their baby. They are heroes. And we aren't passionate just about pro-birth. We're passionate about pro-life. And honestly, I think Christians should have been all over them like a rash. Right? Surely. I'm not too sure if they are. But we're going to go there. We're going to go there and we've we've said to Beth, we want to do anything we can to support those mums in that place. And again, this is going to cost us, but I want us to go there and make some promises. We will be there for you for the first two years. We will mentor you. We will love you. We will give you nappies. We will financially support you. It's a low-hanging fruit that right there, and it's a good place to start in terms of building a reputation in this community that there are other options out there. It's a good place to start. So if you want to get involved in this and any of our other ministries, there's two things I'm going to need from you. I'm going to need your time and I'm going to need your money. Well, God's going to need your time and God's going to need your money. It's going to cost us. It's going to cost us. These are the two most precious commodities we have, but this is how the kingdom advances, is when followers of Jesus give their time and give their money. And for some of you, you know that you're called to go to the front lines. And I want to say this is worth giving your life to. Some of you may want to even consider changing how you operate Monday to Friday so you've got more time to give to what God's placed in your heart because it burns in you. You know, we, we don't need people, like, and, and vulnerable people do not need someone in and out of their life because they're too busy and they have so little margin. We need people who have slowed their lives down and prioritised certain things. This isn't something to add to a busy plate. This is where you choose to lay a whole lot down and live a life of sacrificial worship for God so we see His kingdom advance. So we need time. We need people that are prepared to give your time. Time to support Bruce and Marley with what they're doing in Marae Nui. Time to support what's happening with Tehahi. Time to support our recovery meal. Time to support CAP. We need time. We need you to give your time to give up other priorities to make the kingdom of God, to seek that first in your life. And secondly, we need your money. (laughs) Show me the money. Today we are officially launching the Manawa Order bank account. On your giving envelopes, you will notice that there is another uh, set of figures on there, which is our community trust, Manawa Order. We set this trust up. The reason that it's separate from the church account is because this is our so- purely social services trust, which means we can apply for funding in future once we've got some programs off the ground, but we need investment into this trust to get it healthy. And so you know what? I, I'm throwing this out there. We, I reckon we need about $30,000 to get this thing remotely off the ground. I'd love to stick a whole bunch more zeros on that, but we, I'm serious. I'm caught, like, we've got to seriously invest in the things of the kingdom that are going to bring about the kingdom agenda, certainly when it comes to pro-life issues. It's time we put our money where our heart is. And so some of you guys are really good at making money or have substantial savings. I want to invite you to pray about what it looks like to support this ministry. We also need social enterprises set up that will generate income consistently for the Manawa Order Trust. I've used this example before, but my wife, the the legend that she is, set up a business and over a number of years raised $30,000 for a trust called Compassion Nepal, serving those orphans over uh, in Nepal after she had gone there and her heart got broken. Now $30,000 can buy a pretty sweet home theatre. Trust me, I've imagined what it could look like. But instead, 
Jen rightly said, no, this is going to this kingdom initiative and she could generate consistent income for this particular trust. I need people thinking like that. I need people thinking about how we can generate income to see God's kingdom advance. We need people with the, that aren't called necessarily just to the front, but people that, that know they can resource this significantly by giving uh, money. And so as we do that, we want to have wisdom around how we do that. We want you to be generous but not foolish as you give both your time and your money. I don't want you over-promising and under-delivering. That makes life real tricky for us. But also, we don't live for ourselves. We live for the king. And we want to build the kingdom the king's way. And when you build the kingdom the king's way, it will mean that you do not burn out because you will have margin, because you will honour the Sabbath, because you will have healthy rhythms, because you'll be engaging with him regularly and it will bring life to your soul. You'll know what you're called to and you will have the courage to disappoint all the other things that will say, I need your attention and focus. The key to, to walking the kingdom way is being prepared to disappoint all the other things that would vie for our attention and allegiance. And that sometimes includes bosses and spouses and whatever it may be. We say, no, this. I say no to all because this is what I'm called to. And so I don't want us to be a church that's burning ourselves out, trying to build the kingdom the world's way. I want us to build the kingdom the king's way, which will always bring life to others and to the very people that are going to bring that life to others. We need a lot of wisdom in how we do that. So as we come into land this morning, uh, I want to invite us to, I want to close in prayer. I want to close in prayer. And um, there's a whole bunch of things I'd love to do right now. And, and I'm just going to let you be led by the Holy Spirit about what you want, how you want to respond in terms of just a moment with the Lord this morning. Some of us, um, we may want to repent, maybe not even necessarily for what we've done, but just because we know the church capital sees Mr. Mark a whole lot around this issue and may have done some damage that we didn't really intend to do without thinking in our passion for this issue. Maybe, the, maybe we need to acknowledge that we have had expectations on women and but actually not being prepared to help them outwork those. Maybe we need to repent. Maybe some of us, like our hearts are broken for this issue and let's continue to pray. Pray that late-term abortions don't happen. Not just because we're passionate about legislation, it's because we love the woman involved. Not just the unborn child, the woman they have to experience in that moment is horrific. Maybe we want to pray for release of finance. Maybe we want to sit with the Lord and ask, what is my part to play in this? Maybe we want to, in a fresh way, commit ourselves to deep devotional life and a love and passion for the church that's not just about my needs. We'll come and serve this body. I don't know what it may be for you. Maybe you want to pray for women around New Zealand, the many women that have had abortions this morning, and just pray and bless them and, and just ask that God would meet them and that God would release the hounds of heaven to pursue them with his love. That they would encounter believers who are filled with grace and mercy and kindness that would help them discover what God is really like. I don't know what it may be. Let's just spend some time in prayer now.